It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The recent resignations at Slaunchercare raised their head at the Oireachtas as Stephen Donnelly says two senior people who quit didn't tell him about their frustrations. Meanwhile, outside Leinster House, a demonstration takes place over maternity restrictions. A woman gave birth to you. It is an important job. It is an essential job. So wouldn't you like to give that woman the respect and support she deserves in one of the most important and essential jobs she will ever do? I'll be speaking about all this with Irish independent political correspondent Hugh O'Connell, Social Democrats TD Holly Kearns and Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles. Also tonight, ahead of next week's budget, the central bank says the economy is facing a post-COVID rebound. We want to know what you think about these stories. Our hashtag is TonightVMTV. First tonight, a new poll showing a sharp drop in support for Fine Gael and Sinn Féin way out in front. The Irish Times Ipsos MRBI poll shows that Sinn Féin are now 10 points clear at 32%. Fine Gael are on 22%. Fianna Fáil sit in third at 20% and the Green Party are on 7%. Well, let's bring in our panel on that one. I want to come to you first, Hugh O'Connell. Um, Sinn Féin, 32%. Mm. They've nailed their position, really, as the most popular party in the country. Yeah, you can see it across a succession of polls now that Sinn Féin are very much in the ascendancy and they are the most popular party in the country, according to these polls. So I think that's a reflection of uh, the messaging that they've kept consistent since the last election, change, uh, an alternative, a very different and radical alternative to uh, what Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael are offering uh, in the areas particularly of housing. Um, and I think it's also a reflection of where the government's at, where there's been, you know, it had a bad summer, this Catherine Zappone controversy maybe, you know, didn't get uh, the phones hopping in, in constituency offices, but it certainly, uh, and the emails kind of uh, cascading into, into uh, TD's email inboxes, but it, it did reflect poorly on the coalition because they couldn't get ahead of the controversy. There were eight weeks trying to deal with it. And then there was a motion of no confidence in, in, in Simon Coveney as Minister of Foreign Affairs. So there's just... This is, I suppose a sense that the government hasn't really got a handle on things and there's also a sense, I suppose, amongst the general public that the government hasn't, as it emerges from the COVID crisis and it's done a pretty good job on that, it hasn't really got a benefit of a vaccine dividend. You know, there's an enormous uptake. The programme has run really well since kind of the, you know, the, the late spring into summer. Everyone's got their vaccine. The pubs are open. The country's returning to normality. But the government isn't benefiting from that in the way... That, governments in other countries are, um, I think people are now switching their attention to issues like housing where there's a deep frustration with the lack of progress there. Um, and Leo Vradkar had a pretty uh, sparky mm. um, 
meeting with his Fine Gael parliamentary party tonight. Mm -hmm. Maybe he knew about that poll uh, ahead of going into it. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think his his response to to some of his TDs um, for for you know essentially criticising them for buying into what he just, he termed a fake narrative was motivated by uh, the in interventions by Michael Creed, a former agriculture minister, and Charlie Flanagan, the former justice minister, both former cabinet colleagues of of, um, of Leo Varadkar's, who criticised the party's uh, profligacy, as they saw it, basically, that Fine Gael had shed its reputation for fiscal responsibility and fiscal rectitude in favour of kind of spend, spend, spend. Uh, and that was certainly something that a lot of people took out of the, uh, the tarnished uh, as uh, Fine Gael or death speech a few, uh, few months ago. Um, and I think that that kind of led to Varadkar almost, I mean, snapping is probably a strong word, but certainly um, there was a sense from, from people I spoke to this evening that he, he responded in a very robust way in a way that, that um, you know, I think those TDs might not have necessarily appreciated. But I think the fact that there was open dissent at the meeting uh, was reflective of, of frustration with the direction of Fine Gael amongst some Fine Gael TDs. Shane Castles, your party at 20%. No change in this poll on the previous one, but very worrying for you. No, and I think that Hugh touched on a very important point there where he talked about, you know, it's indicative in terms of politics returning to normal now. We're getting back to normal politics again. And it will be issues like housing that are going to dictate uh, the poll numbers in the future. And I think the so fact this 20% reflects where you're really at? No, I think, I think what we're going to have, Claire, is an opportunity now to build on the policy documents that have been put forward. And we're going to be able to call out opposition parties who want to, you know, come forward with the, the fantasy stuff that they have. But I think the things like Housing for All by Minister Dara O'Brien, which is a real plan properly called and people see the actual impact of that next year and the year after, that's the thing that's going to change poll numbers in favour of Fianna Fáil because they actually do actually have properly costed plans to go and tackle the issues that Hugh has been talking about. Okay, so next time out you're expecting an improvement on that I'm 20%. expecting an, uh, an improvement over a series of polls and getting Fianna Fáil back to the position that it should be at. Okay, well, let's go to other news tonight. And Sláinte Care has been talked about for years and at its heart is the idea of changing the health service from top to bottom. But in the last few weeks the changes are closer to home with a number of senior resignations. And today, Minister for Health Stephen Donnelly was up in front of the Oireachtas and said if there were meaningful changes being done, of course, there would be opposition. When you have the great privilege of acting uh, as Minister, um, people probably don't share their resistance with you. They tend to say, yes. Will there have been and is there resistance uh, within the system to... Uh, large-scale programmes of reform, including this. Of, of course there will be. Of course there will be. Um, Holly Carnes, I want to bring you in here. Did today's Oireachtas briefing bring any more clarity on what's happening with Sláinte Care? I think it brought clarity around everybody's fears around what might be happening in relation to Sláinte Care. So I suppose it's important to note that this policy was brought about, you know, cross-party agreement in 2017, that's after the 2016 election when health was such a big issue at the doors. And, you know, since the healthcare has been established in Ireland, it's been kind of dogged by vested interests. And we ended up with a very dysfunctional two-tiered healthcare system um, where healthcare isn't based on need, it's based on how deep your pockets are. And that is why this po policy came about. And I think sometimes it can feel like this kind of revolutionary far-flung far thing in Ireland because we're so used to paying, you know, 50 or 60 euro to see the GP being on waiting lists, you know, at the moment, 900,000. Um, but ultimately, we're the only country in Europe who don't have this universal access to healthcare. And now we have a plan that's costed, tested and is ready to go. And what we've seen is a slew of resignations from the Implementation Advisory Council, 
of this, um, high-profile figures in that, all echoing the same sentiment, and that is that there isn't the political will mm. to implement Sláinte Care. And I mean, you know, that, that they're saying the resistance is coming from, you know, the Department of Health, the HSE, and then what we saw today in that committee, where Stephen Donnelly was just speaking there, was that, or yesterday it was announced, that that advisory, um, independent advisory uh, council for Sláinte Care is going to be disbanded yeah. and there's going to be a replacement one with, sorry, no, because this is important, with the most senior official in the Department of Health and uh, the, the, the head of the HSE. So the, the, the institutions that the senior members resigning on account of them not, you know, having those, the, 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 the political will or the, the want to change are now being charged with leading that particular change. And driving their own reform. Which is just really, it beggars belief. And ultimately, they're only leading one part of it now, and that is the regionalisation, which is very important. But, you know, what about the rest of Sláinte Care? You know, it was agreed by the cross-party committee that not only would there be an independent advisory council on account of the institutional aversion to change, but also that the Department of the Taoiseach would oversee it because of <laughs> said resistance. And, you know, the Taoiseach has said he basically doesn't have the bandwidth to do that, which nobody's expecting him to implement okay. all of Sláinte Care. But the buck stops with him and with the Minister for Health. And if they don't implement Sláinte Care, it will be the biggest, most epic failure of this government. Because, you know, you go around and ask anybody in Ireland, do you think that a child should be more or less entitled to health care based on how deep their pockets are? Absolutely not. And okay. every other country in Europe has it. We spend 22 billion euro a year on our health sectors. Okay. Uh the health reform plan, like it's a 10-year plan and it was, you know, um, launched with great fanfare four years ago. Um, and look where we're at today, this Oireachtas briefing, explaining why there were resignations at the top and the minister saying, look, I didn't know about the frustrations, I didn't know what was happening there. Whereas the Department uh, Secretary General, uh, um, Robert Watt, said, actually, I was aware of them, but you know, that, that wasn't passed on. There's com confusion, a lack of communication, um, and that sense that the political will isn't there, Hugh. Um, yeah. where, where do you think we are at with it? And what, what are the main sticking points? Well, I suppose what was interesting about Stephen Donnelly's evidence to the committee today was that at the beginning, he said that he wasn't aware of any frustrations um, from Laura McGahey, the executive director, and Tom Keane, who is the, the chair of the um, Implementation Advisory Council. But he wasn't aware of any frustrations. And then later in his evidence, um, he, he said that um, undoubtedly there would, have, there would have been frustrations when he was asked again, was he aware of frustrations? So there's that kind of contradiction there, which is, which is I suppose, concerning in the sense that, you know, which is it? Was he aware they were frustrated? Was he not aware they were frustrated? I mean, you know, the bottom line is he wasn't aware that, that Lauren McGahey was going to resign and that Tom Keane was going to resign. Um, but, you know, now that we're moving, hopefully, touch wood, moving away from COVID, I think there's going to be a lot of focus on what sort of a health system we want into the future. And you're right, there was a cross-party report four years ago that agreed this idea of a universal uh, healthcare system free at the point of access, that the, the role of private healthcare in Ireland would be uh, diminished gradually over time. Um, the requirement is a huge amount of money to be put into that. Is the political will there? It, it's not really clear at the moment that yeah. it is. And one other really, sorry, Claire, just to say one other really important point, I think, is that an awful lot of voters have private health insurance in this country, and an awful lot of voters would be loath to give it up, I dare say. And I think an awful lot of those people vote for Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, and that's something I think that needs to be acknowledged as well. Is that a problem with the chain? That um, while there is uh, talk of, yes, we're all in favour of reform and everyone has a right um, to free health care, that there is that resistance? 
No, and I think, you know, Hugh touched on that point in terms of uh, political will. I think th the evidence there shown by Stephen Donnelly shows that he's up for the fight, that he has the political will. Ah, and I think, I, I think, Look, I think... They had the whole board I, scrapped. I, I, th I think, in, in fairness, he's acted decisively as well in, in putting forward the, the, the new persons as well. But also, you have to reflect on what's been done. Hugh talked about the amount of money. There's 1.2 billion alone being spent this year. There's 850 new permanent beds coming into the system. That's two new medium-sized hospital amounts of beds. You know, 6,000 new people in the system, 1,400 nurses. And the, the impact of that is, if my parents are sick or my partner is sick or whatever, you know, that means then that there's actually a healthcare system that can react to it. There's a huge amount. And this was in the backdrop of a pandemic, a global pandemic, in which this country, yeah. as you've admitted, but, has done really, really okay. well. And you, you talk about that, Shane, but, uh, you know, the minister said it himself today. He said waiting lists... E-health and regional health are highlighted as areas of having a significant challenge. Yeah. Like there's nearly a million people on our waiting list. Well, there was like that hasn't been tackled yet. And the big one about regionalisation, that's the real sticking point, isn't it? That's, that's why we're seeing um, those two senior board members walk from this whole project, because nothing was happening in relation to it. OK, well, you've, you've pointed out three areas that uh, there were challenges in, Claire. There were 109 they were actually going very well in deliverables. There was 112 deliverables, 109 were actually on track. That's are these 97%. not the three big ones, though? They are, of course, the big ones. And that's why Minister okay. Donnelly has come in and said, yes, he's up for the challenge and facing that and making sure we do actually punt both the money and the reforms that are necessary to actually get that system working. OK. Um, Holly, do you think that we should, at this point, get timelines around the regionalisation? Because that does appear to be... A real, a real problem, a real challenge in terms of, of, of getting over that hurdle and really reforming the system? Absolutely, and just briefly, first on the Minister being blindsided about the resignations, um, SAIC had actually written to him earlier in the year and had a meeting to air their concerns, so I think that just is important to note. Um, and yeah, in terms of the regionalisation, they're saying, you know, the delay now is based basically on COVID, but it was um, earlier this year, in May, um, the Minister actually came out with his report, which said that regionalisation would go ahead. That's when we were coming out of the third wave. So if COVID was the reason to prevent regionalisation, why was that not cited at the time in that report? It doesn't actually make any sense. What's changed between now and then? You know, when we're really coming out of restrictions and, and different things like that. And ultimately, the regionalisation aspect of this is crucial because areas have a very different need based on the kind of... Mm. The, the age of the population, the geographical spread of the area, for example, in Cork South West, you could be waiting two hours for an ambulance. And this would allow, you know, budgets for each area to be spent, you know, according to their area. We know that the centralised model does not work and is really affecting so many people. And there'd be actual, you know, accountability and oversight in relation to how those budgets are spent. That is absolutely crucial. There is no reason for it being delayed. Why was that not said in May when he came out with his plan? What is happening now? They're saying, you're saying there absolutely is the political will. How is it that so many senior figures in the Implementation Committee Council have resigned, citing a lack of political you want will? To respond How to that do you share that? No, well, I, do, I do believe that Stephen Donnelly has the political will to push this through. And he made that point in terms of actually at the committee today. And I do believe in the regionalisation model. I, I remember the old system. I remember the old northeastern system in my own area. So I think there is a huge amount of positives. And he's exemplifying that. He's saying, yes, we are going to put this in place. And I think you have to give the man the space and time to go and do that. Okay. We have just come off the back where, where people in the doll were screaming and shouting at him in respect of the various areas of the pandemic.
pandemic and COVID-19. I think we kind of forget that, that where we were as a country last January in the, in, the, in the depths of this and the problems that we were in and where we are now in October, where we're just a couple of weeks away from yeah. relaxing. So I think that's a very, that, that's a very significant and, achievement I mean, if by this country the pandemic well. has highlighted um, how much has needed to be done Absolutely. in the area of our health system. Yeah, and hopefully we, we will change as a result of that and we will actually see that investment because I think we've looked at the health system in a fresh Shane, set of eyes okay. as well. If there's the political will that you're talking about, it would be wise to take on the recommendations from that committee that really thought out this policy and costed it instead of going against them. And one of the crucial pieces of advice was that an independent implementary uh, council should be there well, I think to oversee great team. I think we have a great team there with the Robert Walsh and, and Paul Reid. In the, in the well, I actually think they're, that they're actually highly professional people to, the to make sure that we are going to achieve If you have the will, I you, do you think that's going to be a problem just that, that we're seeing now Paul Reid and Robert Watt heading up or form of their own system? Um, well, I mean, ultimately, they're in the positions that um, you know, had the greatest impact in terms of the sec gen of the Department of Health and the chief yeah. executive of the entire health service. So I think it's, it's difficult to, to see on the face of it how, how they would drive that reform, because one of the key recommendations of the cross-party committee was that this should be driven out of the Taoiseach's office. And that hasn't okay. been adopted. OK, well, we want to move on now because earlier today, demonstrations took place outside Leinster House demanding an easing of maternity restrictions. Here's what some of the people there had to say. It was very, it was isolating being alone for the majority of my pregnancy, for hospital appointments constantly by myself, no partner by my side. And I suppose just so nervous that at any point in that stage, something could have gone wrong. And basically I was alone throughout the entire, I suppose, pregnancy journey. You know, I came around a few hours later and he was only allowed to stay with me for 10 minutes to tell me that we'd had a girl. And I just remember crying as they asked him to go. Yeah, it's really hard. I asked a sonographer if I could ring him just to voice call him during the 20 week scan, where he was a bit nervous, um, just so that he could hear that everybody was okay and that he could ask a question if he wanted. And she said, absolutely, under no circumstances. Enough is enough. Like, this is just the, the, the trauma that this is causing, the mental health issues it's causing. And it's just not necessary. Initially, it was because of COVID, and we know now it's not COVID. It's not COVID anymore, it's control. Stress coming up to us knowing that like I was going to be induced, knowing that my husband wasn't going to be able to be there. Yeah, it wasn't amazing. First baby. Yeah, it would really make me rethink how I have a baby again in Ireland, I think. I think we need to do better. Uh, maternity care is health care. Um, and yeah, so hopefully, hopefully something changes. Although, sadly, I don't have a huge faith in our government. There was supposed to be a roadmap around this, Holly. It seems not much has changed. Um, no, um, you know, since the outset of the pandemic, obviously, we saw, you know, restrictions introduced everywhere. Now we've seen them eased twice, more than that, perhaps, and not in maternity hospitals. It's something that I've been raising for a year now. I think we've all heard the really, really harrowing stories around, um, you know, it's hard enough to give birth alone, you know, in general. But when, when people get bad news, it's particularly hard. And, you know, we've been raising this issue for a year. It got to the point where we had the, the chief medical officer saying, officer saying there is no reason in medical terms for these restrictions. We had the Taoiseach coming out and saying these absolutely need to be eased. The Minister for Health doing the same. And now we're still in a situation where, you know, it's a geographical lottery as to whether you spend some or more of your maternity journey mm. alone. And look, this is something 
all of the female Oireachtas members pretty much were outside Leinster House today protesting uh, with all of the families affected and, and loads of the male Oireachtas members as well. And like, we all want this. The minister apparently wants this. The teacher ones that have kind of come to the conclusion or the question as to like, who is in charge of this? You know, and I heard the minister on this show citing, look, it's not just COVID restrictions, actually. It's a result of decades of underinvestment in maternal health care in Ireland. And like, look, we don't need him to tell us that. We know that. But ultimately, when it, it, we start to wonder who's making the decisions, the fact that the biggest investment in maternal health care ever in this country be in the National Maternity Hospital, and that won't be publicly you know, owned and secular, is a disgrace. But ultimately, we will not stop protesting about this. Women will not stop. We need pre-pandemic okay. access. Shane, the big question, who's in charge here? Yeah, well, I think uh, Holly is right. I mean, there has been huge cross-party support for this, and I know that I'm within my own party, Lisa Chambers and Neve Smith, have been very to the fore in, in leading that. Uh, Stephen Donnelly was actually uh, before us in the Senate this afternoon. was a chairing a session, and I put, uh, you know, those questions to him as well in terms of uh, the protests were happening. You know, and he pointed out to us that there are 17 of the 19 hospitals at the moment uh, compliant. He was uh, contacting uh, like Paul, it's, Paul. It's patchy across yeah. the country, and it does depend. And that, and, on the hospitals, the boards within those hospitals, the masters, um, and their decisions rather than government decisions or HSE decision making. Well, that's why he, he, he outlined to us today in the Senate how he contacted the CEO of the HSE this morning to say that it is uh, no longer acceptable that you have that scenario of, 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 of patchy uh, decision making and that they have to comply with the guidelines and he's put a system in place now that if someone was faced with a scenario whereby uh, they were refused access that they can contact the HSE this referral system and that that can be referred and, and if they're not and, well if they're not if they're not compliant then they actually will be instructed to actually allow that access to happen because I think it is important so you contact a helpline Yes, there is. the minister outlined that today in the Senate in terms of this referral system that will be put in place and he contacted the CEO of the HSE this morning right. for that. But I think it's important to say that there, that there is access uh, for people. I think, you know, you nearly get the impression there was no access. There is access. You know, I'm very well aware of the emotion. But it's, and, it's, and, it's limited and it depends yeah. on where you are no, in the I country. No, I know. And I think, it, you know, I'm very well aware. I have three kids myself, so I'm very well aware of the importance of being there uh, with your partner, with your wife uh, during that process in good times and indeed, unfortunately, in bad times as well. OK. Hugh, does the Minister have the power to compel hospitals to ease their restrictions? Oh, well, I don't think so. I mean, if, if, if he did, he, he probably should have done it by now, given the amount of pressure he's come, over, uh, he's come under over this from, from Holly and from people in his own party and, and across, across the political system and the, the people outside Leinster House today. I mean, no one agrees with the system or with the situation that's arising here where some birth partners aren't there. And, you know, to fix it requires, I suppose, just every hospital to fall into line on this, but they're not prepared to do so. Um, but, I mean, really, so at what, a stage when we're nothing moving... nothing that can happen now, essentially. Well, I mean, it just, to me, it seems as if this is, this is a decision taken by individual hospitals on the basis of trying to um, keep uh, their patients safe, keep their staff safe, that for some sort of safety concerns. I don't okay. know, but, I mean, it's not... It, it, it's, it's patently not... I just want to... Cause I think that we saw... You know, when the Rotunda um, allowed uh, RT to go in and film a yeah, documentary and, you know, and they weren't allowing partners in and, you know, the, even at that time the Minister was claiming this is outrageous, they shouldn't have done that. I put a PQ to the Minister back in December about this to flag it and say, do you really think that this is appropriate? Just, you know, yeah, I mean, they were acting like it was a surprise. Yeah. But one of the things that has become fairly clear is that, well, public pressure, and in that case, unfortunately, humiliation, was what had an impact on easing the maternity mm -hmm. restrictions. And I think 
one of the things that is perhaps now also abundantly clear is that women's health care is always treated as an afterthought. Back in October when they needed you know, changes to the hospitality legislation, there was late night meetings with all of the staff in the different departments coming in to try and reach solutions around COVID vaccine certs and all these things. Never was that level of attention or urgency given to this issue and it should have been really the first on the agenda and that I think is the reality and that has to change. The hospitals need to, you know, change this now because the, the protests today, you know, I think anyone yeah. who's there will tell you we will not stand for this. And you can certainly see the level of anger there from the reaction um, that we got earlier today. Now, Hugh O'Connell, Holly Kearns and Shane Castles will be staying with me. And after the break, the central bank points to a post-COVID economic rebound. And Ireland works out what to do with its corporation tax. We'll discuss that next. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome back. Now, COVID has hit the economy hard, but the central bank had some good news today. They're forecasting that ac activity in the domestic economy will return to pre-pandemic levels by the end of this year. Hugh O'Connell, Holly Kearns and Shane Castles are still with me. And I'm also joined by economist Stephen Kinsla. Stephen, you're very welcome to the programme. Were you surprised by that economic forecast by the central bank? Uh, no, not at all. Um, much of the uh, economic commentary about um, what kind of re uh, rebound we're going to see or we might see focused essentially on letters. So is it a V-shaped, a U-shaped or a K-shaped recession? It seems like it's going to be a V. Um, we saw this after the 2008 crisis as well. The economy rebounded much faster than most people had assumed. In fact, uh, looking at these data that have come out uh, today and these these forecasts from the central bank, it may well be the case that the economy might overheat um, uh, rather sooner than we think. Okay. Uh, yeah, with that warning in mind, how should the government play it? Well, I, I think this it's very often the case that governments find themselves um, piling on uh, money at, at, at almost exactly the wrong time. Uh, just when they should be withdrawing the punch ball from the party, they, they're, they're adding more vodka to it. Um, you know, and so we, we have a situation where the central bank says we're going to see a very fast rebound. And we're talking about, um, you know, uh, um, spending lots and lots more money on, you know, things like vouchers and um, bank holidays and other things. Um, but 
you know, we, we will start to see very large amounts of um, uh, cost inflation. So as energy prices rise, as supply chains are hit, and obviously as more people go back to work, go back to the shops, um, uh, want more things, you know, people will put up prices um, and that will cause a spike in inflation, which will make um, people on fixed incomes, particularly uh, pensioners and um, those on social welfare, those few people remaining on social welfare, um, um, a bit poorer. And so, you know, we will have a situation where, which pretty much nobody working in, in Irish public policy at the moment has any experience of, which is how to manage an economy experiencing large doses of inflation. Okay, uh, Shane, that is the big challenge, isn't it, for government? Um, we, we've seen it with energy price rises and this inflation because of pent-up demand that's there. Um, and the analogy from Stephen there that you don't add more vodka to the cocktail, is that one that the government's listening to? Yeah, well, I suppose, you know, 10 years ago, governments were accused in terms of slashing as well at, in, in, in key times. We've had a big nine days. We've had the National Development Plan on Monday of €165 billion Euro in terms of capital investment that's going to permeate right across the country. We're looking towards a budget next Tuesday of some £88 billion, with £80 billion in core spending and another eight still in COVID support, and that can't be forgotten also. I think the points that Stephen touched on are key, and I think that Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue are looking at that in the formation of the budget next week, especially on the cost of living side. I think that will have to be addressed, whether that be in terms of uh, supports and energy costs, or indeed still things like childcare that still persist and haven't been grappled with properly. And I would hope to see real improvement in that area next Tuesday. Um, Okay, so you're, you're, you're saying bigger spend on capital projects and the likes of childcare, but could there be more prudence elsewhere? And there's all this talk swirling around about spending around pandemic bonuses and, and extra bank holidays, um, as has been mooted there. Is that something that maybe maybe pull back on that we mightn't get no, an announcement on that next week? Again, when you look at the reports from that central bank report today in terms of the areas that are going to do well and still be strong, but there were other areas, especially in the tourism and hospitality area, that still need support. And I know that because I sit on the tourism uh, Oireachtas committee as well, and there's a huge amount of that area that still are not uh, recovered properly. Properly. And so supports are going to be still put in place to make sure that they come through and that their employees come through and that those businesses survive. And that has been done over the past 18 months, but still more work needs to be done in that area as well. Um, Holly, what do you think is key um, for this budget to achieve? What would you like to see next week? I was really glad to hear Shane mention childcare there because I remember last year when there was no mention of childcare at all in the budget, it was very disheartening. Um, and, you know, I'm also glad to hear you reference the, the hospitality sector because it has been very hard hit and we know it was crucial in the recovery of the last crash. Huge employer. Um, I suppose, you know, when we hear economists referencing things like, you know, the impact that the situation we're in will have on, for example, people on social welfare and stuff, I really hope that we also see you know, a lot of work in relation to that. Like we saw with the pandemic unemployment payment, the amount you would get on that versus the amount you get with a disability. When we know there's a huge added cost to having a disability, I think it really highlighted the need for massive reform in that area. And I really, really, really hope that we see some changes in, in the budget on that. Um, you know, if you, what, you know, one of the things when you're canvassing, and you probably experienced this as well, is like, you know, people are so worried about their children when, they're, um, when they have a disability. You know, access to education, all of these things. But what's worse is that when they grow up, there's even less support there, there's nothing. So like the right to live independently, for example, you know, all of these things that 
really should be in, a pla in, in place when we're in a society where we're not so poor enough that we can't provide it. That needs to be done. And ultimately, the government hasn't ratified the optional protocol in the UN Convention. That is why people can't, you know, for example, take a case if they can't get access to education. But I think we really, really, really need to see some work on that in this Some changes there. Um, Hugh, on, on this issue, and um, Holly's pointed to it there, just to look after the vulnerable, but that mm. the, the key issue around the rising cost of living, inflation, and, and how all that's going to play out, like, are we going to see the pensioners get that little bit more, or are the government going to do it in, in a different way um, to, to, to help with those key you know, the rising bills yeah, that we're going to see this winter. I think the government's intention really is to do, is to keep up with inflation by increasing these payments. I mean, that's, I mean, I was at the Labour launch today of their alternative budget and they were talking about um, inflation busting increases to the pension of €7.50. Uh, and you can see the government coming under pressure from their own backbenchers to increase the state pension by €10 Euro or to even €20 Euro, uh, a week. But, I mean, I think that the aim is really to, to try and get on top of that by, by pouring more money into people's pockets in, in some, insofar as they can and then index linking the tax bands so that if people get a pay rise next year as a result of inflation, um, they, that doesn't get gobbled up by the taxmen, okay. by PSI and USC and, and income tax. Okay. I want to um, uh, talk about the big issue, that's the corporate tax rate um, and the decision around the OECD uh, draft uh, proposal there. Um, Stephen, this move um, coming in line uh, globally on this 15% corporate tax rate, and the government were very keen to remove the words at least before that 15%. Why is that so important? The main reason to um, make the argument that it, it shouldn't be variable is that the Irish government has had a platform of tax stability when it comes to the treatment of corporate taxes um, in order to attract multinationals. Um, so w we couldn't have a situation where someone uh, who you know, wasn't a, a, a citizen of this state was able to increase um, a, a, ta a tax that was going to be levied and would, would, would um, very much impact uh, lots and lots of jobs in this area. So, uh, you know, they pay, uh, you know, multinationals pay most of the corporation tax in the country. They pay most of the PRSI, most of the VAT, um, a huge part of the portion of the VAT, excuse me. And so uh, this is a big risk uh, to the state. And I think, you know, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of jobs. Um, and the, they secured a change to the, to the wording that it said it will be 15%. So the rate is now secured. So there's a lot of kind of, uh, I would say, sort of shadow boxing or, or jumping around this now. Um, the decision has been made quite some time ago, and it'll be rubber stamped um, tomorrow and the next day. What is now interesting is the, the, the rate is going to be at 15%. The question is, what is the base? So what is counted as taxable for the purposes of uh, making the tax return. And here, Ireland will, will move out of the centre stage a little bit, and countries like Poland and China will become uh, much more central because they don't have an issue with the rate. They have an issue with the base, what is actually within there getting taxed. Um, and, and so here, we'll have to wait to see what the actual formulation will be. This isn't going to affect budget 2022. It mightn't even affect budget 2023. Uh, um, uh, because this eventually has to be signed as a uh, treaty amongst 140 countries. So and so it will be quite little, some time. A little before, while to go before we see how it all indeed. How, how it all plays out there. But Shane, I mean, you know, from a government point of view and for decades, this is how this has been the big sell for Ireland. This is how we've got the foreign direct investment. Um, are you worried? Well, I think that the uh,
both, you know, Michael McGrath will be hugely cognizant of it. Uh, you know, as, as Stephen said, it's not going to affect this particular budget, but we've seen the growth even in this year uh, in revenues from that, that sphere. But I think there was some very good political commentary today, in particular from John Downing in, in his paper, The Irish Independent, where he, where he spoke about the fact that, you know, we shouldn't be too fearful either in terms of the strengths that we have as a country and still being able to set ourselves. Having, you know, EU market access, having highly educated English-speaking workforce as well, I don't believe we're going to see a flight of uh, major investors out of the country. We still have one of the lowest uh, corporation tax rates in the world as well. So I think there's a huge amount of positives, and that was reflected in the political commentary today. Um, I take it the Social Democrats would take positives from this move, Holly? Yeah, I mean, for, for decades now, like you said, it's been the cornerstone of our kind of industrial policy, and we've seen that as the way to attract foreign direct investment. But, I mean, when we're... There's eight countries that haven't signed up to it, 130 have, and we're one of them. Even the Cayman Islands has signed up, but would do reputational damage if we didn't at this point. And I suppose that, you know, policy with, that we've had of 12.5% has brought in a lot of foreign direct investment, and it's been very lucrative for us, but now we're very reliant on it. So 21% of our tax comes from that. And what's more concerning is that 51% um, comes from... 10 companies so we need to look at what is our new industrial policy and i think ultimately you know what attracts foreign direct investment i think if companies knew that their staff would have access to healthcare, be able to afford a home um, you know all of those things i think that's what we need to be looking at investment in public services now is the time okay we will leave it there my thanks to hugh o'connell holly kearns and shane castles and stephen kinsler who joined us tonight via skype and coming up next a four-day working week is discussed at the oireachtas we debate the merits back. Now, how we look at our working life has changed in the last 19 months, and that was shown this morning when the idea of a four-day working week was discussed at an Oireachtas committee. Well, joining us to debate just that is Joe O'Connor, Chair of Four-Day Week Ireland and Director of Campaigning at Forza, Maeve McElwee, Director of Employer Relations at IBEC, and Caroline Reedy, joining me in studio tonight, Managing Director at HR Suite. I want to come to you uh, first, Joe, because this is the big idea, the four-day working week. Are we talking um, shorter working hours or longer days and a day off? So we're talking about shorter working hours in our campaign. As you said, the COVID-19 pandemic has illustrated, I think, for both workers and for employers, the potential for a very different way of organizing how we work. And we in the 40 Week Ireland campaign since 2019 have been advocating for a new model of work, which focuses on measuring results, outputs, and productivity, rather than time spent at the office, at the desk, or on the clock. So what we're really talking about here is the 180-100 model, 100% of the pay, 80% of the time, but crucially in return for 100% of the productivity. This is something that has worked extremely well internationally. There's a lot of business case studies and academic research that have demonstrated that this can work for business as well as for workers and can also have benefits in terms of the environment and gender equality. So we've launched this pilot program in Ireland, which will be starting early next year. We're gonna be offering businesses who sign up to participate in that program, training, mentoring, networking, and access to world-class academic research. 
And we're delighted that 17 Irish companies have already signed up to take part in this pilot programme. OK, and in terms of productivity, because I say the ratios you put on 100% pay, 80% um, of, of the of the hours that we, you would have traditionally worked, but 100% productivity, what's the science behind that? The science behind that is that a lot of firms that have done this have used this as an entry point to a discussion within their firm about how they can work smarter rather than longer, how they can do things more efficiently within their business. And what they've seen is that their employees are more focused, they're more motivated, they're more energized. And when they've set out to maintain productivity, they've not only done that, but in the case of Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand, in the case of a number of the, um, the areas within the Icelandic trial that was done where they reduced working hours from 40 hours to 35 on average. And also here in Ireland, in terms of the ICE group, a company based in Galway, SEL Sales, a company based in Clare, these have all done this and they've demonstrated that they can not only maintain but actually increase their productivity by over 25% in many cases. Okay, um, Caroline, I want to bring you in here. If this was to happen now, how do you set the rules and implement it within a company? Is it a major headache? I think there's so many positives to the concept of at least trialling it that it's definitely worth, depending on the type of organisation, looking at different ways of working. I suppose back in the day when um, Ford Company in the 1920s reduced from six days to five, everybody thought, God, that'll never happen. Remote working, we thought it'd never happen as smoothly as it has. I think it's definitely something worth trialling. However, I think what's really important is people don't end up working four days and doing the work of five in four days. And equally, from an employer perspective, that they don't lose that productivity because it's a very ambitious promise that you will work 80% of the hours, but you will actually get 100% of the productivity. So I think there is definitely an opportunity to trial it, and it's fantastic. There's 17 companies, I think, signed up now to start the trial in early next year. And I think we'll get a lot of learnings from that. But I think we definitely have to test um, and measure and see what uh, we get as the results from those trials. Maeve McElwee, we're in the testing phase of this. 17 companies we've heard already um, signed up to this pilot project to reduce uh, working hours down to a four-day week and get that precious day off during the week. I think a lot of people would welcome it. A lot of employees would welcome it. What do employers think? I think what we have seen over the last number of years and pre-pandemic as well has been that real move to different and newer ways of working. And of course, employers are always going to be open to innovative ways of working that make it attractive for people to come and work with them. But obviously, it has to work for the business. And that's why we've seen so much flexibility in remote working and now moving into that hybrid working space. The four-day working week will, of course, be very advantageous for some businesses. And um, I'm not at all surprised that there are a number of individual businesses who have trialled it and found it to be successful. I think the challenge is introducing it on a much broader scale or indeed reducing the hours, whether it's a four-day working week or a significantly reduced working week. That does obviously present much more significant challenges for business and very significant costs. There are obviously questions around whether it's going to be suitable for every sector and industry and how it could be applied fairly across uh, a much broader uh, employment scenario. So, May, for working fewer hours, do you think workers should get paid less? No, I don't think workers should be paid less for working fewer hours. I think the challenge, though, is around how we manage 
if people were to work fewer hours and if we took, for example, some of the sectors where people skills are really the, the key um, to the success of the business. So if you look at things like teaching, nursing, elder care, in fact, anything in our care sector, uh, the reality of being able to provide the same service uh, in a shorter amount of time doesn't really follow through. You are going to have to start to hire in additional personnel to be able to cover off the hours that uh, have been reduced. Now, that can be extraordinarily expensive. We already know that we've got a significant challenge um, in terms of our skills base at the moment. We've got an ageing population. When we look at our, certainly our care sector and the needs that we're going to see in years to come, um, and it is significantly costly. The Icelandic trials have identified that, and particularly when you look at the trials that have been done in Sweden in the health sector, they just became prohibitively expensive for the taxpayer. Okay, it's expensive for the taxpayer, um, Joe O'Connor. That's the word from employers, expensive as well for small businesses um, and a difficult one to actually work out in reality. What do you say to that? Well, when we talk about the four-day-week concept, we're not talking about a one-size-fits-all model. We are talking about a flexible approach. We're not saying that every business or every sector or every setting should have a four-day, nine-to-five scenario in the same way that not every business has a five-day, nine-to-five scenario currently. But we do believe that some version of reduced working time can be implemented across the economy. We believe that in the vast majority of sectors right now, a four-day working week could be introduced successfully without losing productivity and without increasing employment costs. Maeve is absolutely right. There are some sectors of the economy whereby if a four-day working week was to be introduced, it would require hiring more staff, and healthcare is one. So no one is saying that nurses and doctors, for example, could work four days, increase their productivity. So you're saying some companies can do it, but actually if you're a healthcare worker, you can't. No, what I was going to say, Claire, is that this is a transition. Some sectors are more ready to take the leap right now. But if you look at the healthcare sector, if you look at the Swedish trial that may have referenced, the, the outcomes for staff and for patients in that care home trial were very positive. Yes, there was increased employment costs, but we have a major issue within our health services and within health services internationally of stress, of overwork, of burnout amongst doctors and nurses and healthcare professionals. And as we look at the future of work in the round and the fact that most research would suggest with automation, with artificial intelligence, intelligence, with other major transformative changes that are, that are going to take place. The caring sector is one of the se sectors of the economy that we will need to invest in. So we think that there is potential for employment growth there, and there is the potential for a shorter working week to be delivered. I mean, at the end of the day, Caroline, isn't it the case that it's really in the, empl uh, the ball is in the employees' court, court right now? It's, the, it's employees right now who are deciding that they don't like the job they're in. They're not getting the hybrid working they want. They're not getting that life balance that they need. And there's a huge recruitment uh, crisis facing us. So therefore, yeah, this, this, this pilot project currently could become the norm. I think we've really seen that the new way of working is going to be a huge amount of flexibility and people really want work-life balance once they're getting a fair wage after that work-life balance is the number one priority and I think this is going to be another one of the new ways of working we're going to have to start to embrace in some sectors. Yeah, um, Maeve do you think that that's going to be something that you're going to have to really embrace in order to keep staff? I think flexibility is something that employers will be embracing to keep uh, attract and retain staff. And we certainly saw that pre-pandemic when we were at almost full um, employment. 
Uh, and that, that's been uh, a trend for a number of years. And clearly, pandemic has uh, accelerated that considerably. I don't necessarily think we will see the four day work week or significantly reduced hours uh, becoming the norm. But I do think flexibility is what employees are going to need and what employers are going to be willing to uh, accommodate insofar as their, their business can still run successfully in that way. What does flexibility mean then? Flexibility actually tends to be very um, employee centric. And what we have seen from our own membership base is that employees really want uh, flexibility that reflects their own particular lifestyle needs at whatever point in their lifestyle they're at. So it might be more time off to attend for education purposes. It might be uh, the, the flexibility to drop a child off in the morning, to be able to take time out in the afternoon to mind a, a parent. Whatever the circumstances are, it tends not necessarily to be a one size fits all of any description. Okay. And actually, it is much more individually okay. reflected because all of those things go on, whether you work four or five days a week. And there we'll have to leave it. My thanks to you, Maeve, and to Joe and to Caroline, who's joined me here in studio. That is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning from all the late team here. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.